Hello, hello. Welcome to Conversations with the Chiefs. Uh, today we have a very special guest with us, uh, Polly Spiros. Um, she is a musician, avid tennis player, and so happens to be the Chief Customer Officer of Fuel Cycle. Glad to have you join us today, Polly. Great to be here. I think that uh, if anyone heard me described as a musician or a tennis player, I think they would say, that's great. Keep your day job, but um, which I enjoy very much my day job. But yes, try to maintain sort of a well-rounded uh, escape from work on occasion and, and music and, and tennis do that for me. So thanks. And could you uh, tell us just a little bit about your uh, your background, just really how you got started within customer success? It's not every day that someone wakes up and says, this is what I want to do. So how did you uh, how did you segue into it? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I um, you know, I, I like a lot of SaaS professionals. Um, I would say customer success really came into its own in the last 10 to 15 years. So no, I, I, I didn't start in customer success. I was uh, actually a research practitioner when I started and I was a doer, doer seller. Um, worked for a professional services firm and had a nice run of doing a mix of kind of um, seller doer type activities and market research and then some in marketing through a you know series of worked in CPG and then agency. And then at some point when I, you know, when I started to get pretty serious about my career as an individual contributor, I had to make a decision like most of us do, which is, you know, do I want to continue to be an individual contributor or do I want to lead? And I didn't know. Uh, I don't think you ever know. So I uh, think that I had an opportunity to sort of be a team lead. And um, I was managing organic, an organic team that we grew from like three to five. That's where I, I had the pleasure of meeting Mike Delisle. We did some work together for, for that company. Uh, it was a great company. Uh, it spurred a lot of companies uh, and uh, we grew that team. Uh, and I had the opportunity to sort of be a team, you know, a player coach, team lead. And it got to be where it was time to decide, you know, wanted, do I want to be a leader or do I want to be an individual contributor, player, or coach? And so I, I tried the leader thing at a company called Survey Sampling International, which was the predecessor, uh, one of the predecessors of Dynata, which is a huge company now in the insight space. And I liked it and I was pretty good at it. But luckily, I you know I, I made I, I sort of learned quickly when I made my mistakes. Got got a fast feedback loop that later informed uh, me about you. You got to really go for it and try your hardest and swing for the fences. And you're not always going to do it right, but you're going to have a if you have a fast learning loop and an open mind. Um, I learned quickly, uh, you know, that being a sales leader or being a revenue generating leader was something that suited me well and something that I enjoyed very well. And I had some great mentors along the way, which has given me a real motivation to give back. And one of the things that I find most rewarding about my work is, is really mentoring young professionals and giving them an opportunity to sort of, you know, have someone to help them find their way uh, as a, as a, you know, a guide or a mentor. So it's one of the things I really enjoy about you know, connecting my past and my present. Uh, and that's that's sort of how I found my way to customer success. I was, um, I'll, I'll tell you about my current role. I was a sales leader at Dynata. And uh, as that uh, engagement was kind of coming to, to an end, uh, one of my former colleagues tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, come over to Fuel Cycle. I'd like you to I'd like you to run the customer organization. And I'm like, gosh, I don't know. I'm a sales, you know, I'm a sales leader. I'm not sure that, uh, I'm not sure that a CCO role or, you know, head head of customer is something that I'm interested in. 
when I got to Fuel Cycle, <laughs> Fuel Cycle is a startup company. I want to say it's a scale up company now, uh, but it was, mm -hmm. a, you know, it, it has progressed from a startup to a scale up. And I looked around, I'm like, where is the customer organization? And, and they're like, yeah, that's that we need to build that. We need to build that customer organization. So that's what I've been doing for the last two years. And it's a great culmination. All, all my experiences up to this point, because I really thought that I would remain sort of in a very like revenue generating role. But as our economy is shifting and as our customers are becoming more and more precious assets, I find that all of the skills that someone develops in a revenue generating sales role are necessary in a customer role. Because right now, retention, customer retention, um, expansion of, of your current customers, this is really paramount, especially in our economy where you have really so many companies that are kind of in a waiting mode, almost in a, a hold mode before they uh, make new capital expenditures and fuel cycles, uh, you know, it is a, a significant investment. It's an enterprise piece of software. So I, I, I just, just by, I guess, luck, I have found myself in a very important role in any scale-up company, and that is running an organization that is driving the ability to demonstrate value. That is key. And uh, lots of moving parts. We have a professional services arm. You know, we have a customer success arm. We have a, a customer solutions sort of help desk. And all of these groups work together to uh, to, to drive a, a customer experience. And, and it it's going to be a predictable, reliable, innovative customer experience in order to remain competitive. There's just so many options out there. Um, and I would say, I mean, I happen to work in the insights and UX and CX industry, but I think that goes for any industry, really. Retaining your customers, keeping your customers you know, happy and, and making sure that you're continually evolving and improving your product so that you meet your customers, not only where they are today, but where, where, where they need to be tomorrow um, is, is extremely challenging, but it, it's also really rewarding because um, it's not kind of a, you know, I used to be excited about hitting making a big sale and then moving <laughs> on to the, the next sale. Yes, it's not yes. like that anymore. Now, you're, you're, you have to really live up to the commitments that you make to the customers. That's very exciting to me. And it, it's been one of the most gratifying parts of this job. And if you just, think about that great success that we just talked about, you know, that entire story, the journey from being market research all the way through currently, right? What do you think your key takeaways are that contribute to the success and the evolution of your career? I know we have many, many discussions about those transition points from leadership or to leadership from individual con contributions. So I'm just curious, um, you know, what, what do you think about, you know, what were the key takeaways for you? Well, I think working hard and making sure that you are always aligned with whatever company you happen to be, you know, working with, you, you, you kind of your, your day-to-day -day activities, the, the work product that you're putting out there, uh, you have to really make sure that you're aligned with, you know, kind of what your, what your boss is, is it needs to, to drive and, and, you know, making sure that you're always part of, uh, an alignment, a solution that is really, really important, especially I think for young professionals and, and we're, you know, working hard and we're, we have kind of our, you know, our, our vision is narrow, right? We're like, okay, I got to hit that quota, your body check everybody in the way to your quota. And that's great for an individual contributor. As you mature in your job, uh, in your role and your career, and you, you start having larger footprints of influence, responsibility, people demand strategy, you, you become very aware that, you know, you, you need to really have contextual uh, competence and contextual awareness because 
um, there is a company strategy. Uh, and it's really, really critical to understand how your work fits in to the larger company initiative, the enterprise initiatives. And it, that's specifically, I think, important for leaders, because not only do you need to be in line with those enterprise initiatives, but you need to make sure that all of those folks who are looking to you, uh, you know, as as their their leader, that that they understand how their work fits into the whole. And I think it's part of a, a very holistic, how do you retain employees? Make sure that they understand that the work they do is critical to the success of the company, making sure that their personal goals are aligned with company goals. These are all really, really important things. I guess what you might be asking also, Mike, is you know, was there ever something that I'm like, oh gosh, I didn't realize before. I think you know, when, when you start off your career, you're very concerned about other people's opinions, other people's points of views. I, I think that somewhere along the line, I recognized that if I remained authentic to my point of view, and if that point of view was in line with the company, I was going to do my best work is to, to bring an authentic self, like lead with my strengths. I remember spending a lot of time trying to be really good at things that there was probably, I was never had a chance to be good at. Mm -hmm. um, if, if I had just, I think spent more, to, you know, if I could go back and say, Hey, younger self, what would you do differently? I'd be like, find your strengths, nail them, become the best at them. Because then you can be one in a million when you're just working on kind of the things you're not great at just trying to keep up and, you know, make sure that you're fulfilling this person's point of view or this person's opinion. You're never going to be much more than mediocre at those things that you struggle with, yeah. you know, spend your time saying. at the, yeah, spend your time at the things you're good at and get really, really good at those things and own it and wear it and say, this is the value that I bring. Um, so I guess that's conscious competence as well. That's an important thing. Conscious competence, knowing what you're good at, knowing that when you saddle up to your desk, you know what to do. And if you don't know what to do, you know, you can figure it out. I think that's- I've always that's, said, find your lane. Yeah. Defining that lane, finding that lane, refining that lane and sticking with that lane. Yeah. That's what I would say is really important. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think I, you've done that from our from my experience with, with working with you for multiple years. Thanks. Well, and you do your best. I mean, sometimes you do have to sort of be like, what do you want? What do you, what do you want me to do? You want me to go? I don't know anything. Okay. A good example. I'm spinning up a help desk, right? Spinning up customer solutions. I'm like, I really don't know how that works. I've never done that before, but I have a lot of smart people around me and, uh, and I'm pretty good project manager and I've got great people that are really committed to making that happen. And so I think a leader, you know, is sort of part project manager too. You really kind of need to be methodical in, all right, at the end of the year, what do we want this thing to look like? And now work backwards. How are we going to get there? What happened in order for us to arrive at that outcome we're seeking? And so mm -hmm. I, I would say that, you know, good leaders can operate in places where it might be just outside of their, of their, uh, of their expertise. But I always also say that like, you know, when you're on the edge of your comfort zone, that's when you're most alive and, and and happiest. And, you know, when you're doing something that's hard, not impossible, but hard, and you're kind of right, pushing your comfort zone, that, that is a very gratifying, rewarding place. And I think it's important for all of us as professionals to, to make sure that we put ourselves in that, in that situation where we're 
taking up less space because we're on the edge of our comfort zone, right? I, I think that that's really critical. And if you feel like you're moving too fast, you know, if you feel like things are moving fast, that's probably the right pace. If they if they don't feel like they're moving fast, you may not be going fast enough. And as you indicated earlier, it's the responsibility of that leader to really set the vision for the team and just really set the direction because there's a thing called um, aggressive uh, patience where you're aggressively pursuing something or progressively, uh, aggressively um, working towards something without seeing the end result right away, but just trusting that all these puzzle pieces will fit into place eventually. It's uh, kind of like the analogy of working out. You work out for one week, you don't see results, but if you compound that over, let's say five years, the results are clearly there. Same thing with the vision of the organizations, really what they're trying to accomplish at the end of the day. Yeah, I love that. I think what you're, you're I mean, what I'm hearing you say is be committed to the process because it's true. Um, aggressive patience. I like that. I'll probably use that, um, Steve, again. Aggressive patience. I love it. Um, I think what that is, is like having, is being disciplined, right? I mean, I think one, one thing that uh, is hard now because everything's an emergency, especially in the last 36 months, 36 now. I mean, we're going, you know, we're going into four years now. I think the the pandemic has really thrown us into a, a bit of a tailspin and I don't think it's going to change. I really don't. I, I, I think that we're in constant emergency, constant shift, constant what's next. We had the great resignation and then we're coming off of that. And now we're, everybody's talking about a recession. I don't know that it's, it's going to slow down. I don't know that it will. And so discipline is more important than ever. Uh, because when, as all, you know, as priorities shift, uh, as companies pivot, uh, if you don't maintain discipline, then you're, you're going to end up spinning your wheels and not getting a lot done. And so, you know, it's important to have kind of three core North stars, three to five core North stars, and that you're like, these are the things, these are the motions, shopping wood, carrying water. These are the things that are going to get us to this outcome. We need to keep iterating, get a fast learning loop iterate, do it again, try it again, get better at it, get better and better at it. Uh, which is, I think what, you know, what you're talking about, the, the aggressive, aggressive patients. I think you need to have those things or else we'll, you know, if we keep moving for if every emergency, you end up not getting a lot done. So that's with really your, awesome. with your tight interact interaction with customers, right? Uh, what have you seen in terms of the buying journey or how customers respond to the sales process? How has that changed? Because I know it's very dynamic, but how has it changed as a result of COVID? Any kind of key influencers that have that you had to adjust to? Yeah, I think that it. So I want I want to say that I think it was already heading in this direction, and I think the pandemic simply accelerated it. So mm -hmm. what we're seeing is so, and I'm going to talk about an enterprise sale because I do think that you know you can have a leader still have a say a 25k discretionary budget where they can be like, yeah, we're buying that, right? So. This is really in larger kind of enterprise purchases. We're seeing some interesting things. The sales cycle is much longer. And the reason why it's longer is because now you have, you might've had like three people involved in a buy before. Now you have five to 10 people involved, including procurement and sourcing is becoming very savvy with regard to, and sourcing is getting interesting now. Procurement is getting really interesting because it used to be, how can we save money, right? But I think now, Procurement is becoming more sophisticated. And now they're saying, how can we reduce redundance? 
um, because I do think that companies love tech and they they know they need a tech stack, but I think that there's a lot of overlap in that tech stack. And so at least in the, in the technology space, I think companies are eager to solve problems by purchasing tech. Uh, and I think that that results in a lot of overlap and some redundancy. So I think procurement is now getting really smart about, look, if we've got this and it does A, B, and C, we don't need another thing that does B and C. We can we can pr- try to get you know try to get our, our work done here with this with this technology. So that's you know the sales cycle has has extended. There's more there's more uh, work to do, more people to uh, demonstrate value to. Additionally, um, it is really you know there's a hesitancy I think to pull the trigger because you never know. I think that more than ever. Uh, business people and people even with uh, significant purviews, they are uh, nervous. They don't have confidence that what they're doing is the right decision. So customer confidence is really now what we're striving for. Not our confidence, you know, Mm -hmm. we're confident in our product. We're striving for customer confidence. We want customers to be confident in their decision when they in, when they invest in us. That is the foundation of a great customer relationship. And in order to instill that confidence in their decision-making, that sales cycle probably starts uh, so much later than it used to. It used to be that we were educating our customers. By the time we talk to a new prospect, they're already 60 to 70% down the journey. They've already done their sort of, you know, comparisons, everything that they can find in the public domain. They're accessing sites like G2 and Satira, all those sites that, you know, compare uh, solutions. So they're really so far down the, the purchasing process that it's an informed buyer by the time they're actually talking to us. Um, so, that, that, so that's different. I mean, that's, that's different yeah. than it used to be. I was going to say, I mean, so thinking about that the competitive landscape and the buying behavior and how sophisticated it is on the internal side, like so product sales, marketing, customer success, right? The whole go-to-market aspect, right? Yeah. How much better do you need to be as an integrated organization? Because um, I don't think siloed organizations are really effective when you're trying to be successful in marketplace, right? So how would you say, is that changed in your company and your prior companies about how tightly integrated those units are in terms of communication and how that impacts customers? Thank you for asking that question because it's really important and I might have not brought it up on my own, uh, but it's really critical. So the, the, the CAC, the ability to recoup your marketing spend on the beginning of a tax sale, right? Mm-hmm. The longer your CAC is, the harder it is to make to make money. And what I mean by that is to make a profit. If you if you're spending all your money on the new logo side and it takes you 24 months to recoup that, that is a long cycle. And so to address that, smart companies are making sure that that you know, sales is no longer siloed. Because it, a great, great salesperson can make a quick hit, get the deal, get signature if that if that fit if that market fit isn't there i should say if that product fit isn't there if the use case isn't there and if if there isn't a direct path a direct line of sight to value that customer will churn and then we will never get our our investment back right so w- with the you know the investment upfront for any company I, i'm 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 at fuel cycle but any tech company uh mm-hmm. when they're making especially specifically enterprise sales they're making a major investment to get that new logo in 
you got to get that back. In order for that to happen, that customer, we must retain that customer for an extended period of time. And uh, in order to for that to happen, it's not only sales, product needs to be involved immediately. Customer success needs to be involved to make sure that the enterprise uh, the enterprise expectation of that product, right? So there's enterprise objectives. It can't just be about what that product does at the level of you know the user. It's got to be what value does this enterprise technology drive for the enterprise? That's how you can start a value track where you have enterprise objectives and then customer success takes it. First, it's implementation, right? Making sure that implementation is done exquisitely, flawlessly executed so that the customer gets a great start to using your technology. And then customer success takes over. Or maybe you have a professional services arm. Many com- many tech companies do, not only, not only insights companies. In order for that sale, to make sense for the long run for that customer, you have to have so many inputs because if it's a salesperson who's just like driving toward a quota, that, that's not necessarily a reliable witness. You absolutely need to make sure that the customer organization is involved. And besides, and now the customer demands it. They want to know who's going to take care of them after the handoff. They want to know that your company has thought about the handoff and that each phase of the customer journey has been reliably uh, planned. You know, scenario planning is very important now. Actually thinking about what this customer, when they come into your ecosystem, how they're going to feel, where they're going to feel these value points, those commercial moments that you have to win, renewal, upsell, when you make a mistake and you got to make an apology. It is critical that smart organizations think about these moments, these commercial moments, these must-win moments ahead of time and know how you're going to react and have a plan for how you're going to address them. As an organization, silos are, are, are very prohibited to prohibitive to, to that scenario. You absolutely cannot have silos. And, and it's very, you know, you can tell, like I, I can probably look at an organization's sort of, uh, um, you know, churn rate and, and how many customers they're keeping versus, I can tell you if there's silos involved because si- silos are probably the biggest killer to, um, you know, to, to making sure that you retain a customer. And the other thing is organizational capacity. You have to drive institutional capacity that can handle all these new logos. And that's also scenario planning. So living, you know, I'm constantly thinking about Q4, Q1, Q2, 2024. If I'm not doing that work now, I mean, it's too late now. Like it's too, this is too late. We are always solving for the future. Smart companies solve for the future, not for the local problem today. So what you're saying is being thorough and just really being able to anticipate customer issues throughout their journey before they even develop. So that's a level of sophistication that you guys are going through when managing that current client. I think that most organizations are going through this. I think that, I mean, that's why you're seeing more and more chief customer officers, right? It's a, it's a sort of a new thing, just like customer success is sort of new. I mean, customer success used to be help desk, right? It used to be like account managers. We'll, we'll take care of any problem you have. It's an in, inbound uh, activity. Customer success is a proactive value driving initiative now. It's not only... 
uh, department, but it's also a thing. Customer success, building a customer success culture where your customers feel confident about the decisions they make because of the product that they're the, the product that you're delivering to them. I think that envisioning the customer journey, and then by the way, reiterating it over and over. I mean, we've changed. You know, we have a customer journey model. We changed it ten times already because as customers evolved, as customers become more sophisticated with their needs more discriminating we have to too we have to really recognize you know there's x number of personas they need this from the product but they have stakeholders too and those stakeholders have expectations from the, the our users like our, our buyers um it, it is complicated and if you're not thinking really long and hard and working like actively working on your customer experience your customer journey what you want it to look like what you want it to feel like for the customer. If you're not spending a lot of time on that, they'll decide it for you. And it might not be what you want. And with that being said, I mean, how do you prioritize which customers to really focus on and really how you allocate your resources to really ensure that each customer receives that appropriate level of attention? Because you explained to us how sophisticated that entire journey is. How do you do it for each one of your clients? And how do you dictate what uh, resources get allocated? And probably also, how do you balance prioritization of those customers, right? Which I'm sure is a real challenge. Super challenge. Um, it's a super challenge because, you know, the obvious answer to the question is segmentation. You segment your customers so that those customers that are the best fit, that you can really, really make a huge impact with, you know, huge impact meaning drive the most value for that customer, they're prioritized. Um, it also, you know, as running a business, you also are looking at, is it, you know, are they, is it a, is it a profitable customer? Is the customer profitable? Uh, is the customer really value? It's a good fit. Is it a good use case? You know, or, or is, is it the right fit? It's got to be a good fit on both sides, honestly. Mm -hmm. So you have all of these segments. And then, but you also think about, is this a logo? That we're that we really want to be associated with. That's important too, um, and I and I mean that both ways. I mean, if if you you know a, a company can make a decision that this is a logo that we absolutely want to be associated with, and so maybe you put a little bit more into that. And so I'll, I can tell you a little bit. Our our segmentation is based on a scoring system where we say, okay, this customer meets these you know these criteria, and some customers need more. Even you know, and then you're going to make a decision. You know, some customers are high touch but low value, you got to make a decision. Are, are you going to continue to provide the same level of service to, to each of those customers in the same way? The other thing is, is I think that it's important to, to point out that every customer has a desired outcome, right? But every customer also has a desired experience. And it's only when these two things are put together, where you do you have the appropriate customer success model? Because it can't only be about how big the customer is or how needy they are or how how much you know how much time they they need of yours it really has to be a segmentation process that is replicatable predictable and you, you also need to consider what what kind of ROI you're going to get because service is expensive I and mean, we are a technology company significant part of our our um you know uh, investment is our people right it's the people so we we you know we see our customers, our customers as an asset. What investment do we need to make in terms of people, care, nurturing, professional services to make sure that we nurture that asset and we keep it healthy and we keep it 
in in our kind of you know keep it as an as our asset. So it, it's uh, I I would I'm just going to keep going back to companies that want to retain their customers. They need to spend a lot of time, effort, and investment on keeping those customers. I think sometimes it's I think it's jujitsu ju, ju, flipped, right? You spend a lot of money on logos, keeping your customers. And growing those customers is ultimately the best way to drive to drive a profit. And I think probably the most when you look at like which companies really perform in the stock market, as an example, those are the ones that have constant increasing customer enterprise growth, right? And um, I think that's really critical. And I think you you uh, you're right on. And I, I think Jason Lemkin said it best. He's like, you can build a great business with new logos right? But retain your customers and expand your customers, you can build an empire. That's not my quote. That's his quote. But I think it's true because I think, you know, you'll get new logos because those customers, those satisfied evangelical customers who just Mm -hmm. really believe in you, your champions, they'll tell others. They'll also take other roles. They become your new logos. I mean, so that's why I think I have the greatest job in the world. I think chief customer officer is the most important work that I could be doing uh, because not, you know, and it's also relationship building. It's, it's, it's really important. We are providing, you know, we work with billion dollar brands, but at the end of the day, it's people, those people, they have, you know, they have goals that they need to meet. They have stakeholders that they need to not only satisfy, but they want to impress them too. They want to do great with their job. So figuring out how our technology and our services can help them knock it out of the park. I mean, that's, that's a really marvelously gratifying uh, work that we do every day. It's like, it's, it's hard work worth doing. It's great. So how do you really build that strong relationship with them to really earn their trust at the end of the day? Because as you mentioned, it's all about the um, AR annualized recurring revenue, right? That comes from each one of these clients over the lifetime. So how do you build these strong relationships and really gain that trust from them? Because trust is very difficult in the very, in the, especially in the early stages, just to build. Yeah. So I think you got to have a good product, right? You got to have a great product mm-hmm. because if you don't believe in your, if you don't believe in your technology, then it, that's hard. Uh, but if you believe in your technology, I mean, I believe in our technology, and then you you know its value, you know its worth. Then you start to look at, we have all of these customers that are that are coming back to us every year, renewing every year, right? So you have this conviction yourself, and then you see customers using your product. You gotta, I think, dive in and and think, okay, what jobs are there to be done? Like jobs to be done, what work are do they need to execute with your technology, and really understand the jobs to be done on the customer side. Because that's when you really break down this customer vendor, right? What is that? The vendor is, if the vendor understands, the vendor partner understands what what jobs the customer has to get done, then you really, then you can make something happen. If you really understand your customer's challenges, the jobs, the gating issues, the things that drive them nuts. These are, uh, these are, these are, that the core foundations to really providing a professional relationship. Moving beyond that, right? Because you have to have that. I think that's the foundation. You got to understand the jobs, to, like how are your customers using your product? What jobs do they need to execute flawlessly day after day? 
to make sure that their stakeholders are satisfied. So once you have that foundation, then I think you move into the trust and authenticity uh, factor, which is, I, I think that trust is a premium these days. I think that I, I don't know where that happened because I know that when I came into a sales role, it was very much about getting the deal. I mean, you know, you think about back to like Glenn Garrett, Glenn Ross, ABC, always be closing, always be closing the great leads. That's mm -hmm. over. That, mm -hmm. that era is so over. It is now really about, can I trust my vendor that they really want to do the right thing by me? Uh, can I trust them? And if the answer is yes, that's the first, that's the first thing. Can my, and then you got to ask yourself, can my customer trust me? You got to be able to say yes to that question. And then you spend the rest of the time in the relationship living up to that commitment. And that's hard because it's never, you never, you know, we, we've gone are the days where you're, you're doing something to pull one over on your cut. Let's hope that those companies don't exist anymore. I think they, you know, those companies have learned their lesson, at least that's hope. And, and if not, then they're, they're going to meet their demise soon enough. But let's assume that companies uh, in our American business culture, even beyond America, uh, let's assume that we've come to this uh, understanding that you have to do the right thing right? You got to do the, if there's a the right thing to be done, you got to do the right thing by your customer and make sure that you really are committed to driving value. So what could, what could be the gating issue that would prevent that from happening? It, it's, it, it's not, it's not malicious. It's if you don't have your act together, if you don't have preparation, that's when we let our customers down, when we're not prepared, when we, when we don't have our act together, when we're not organized, when we're under-resourced, because that happens a lot, Companies, if, if they haven't built institutional capacity to ensure that they can deliver on the promise that the customer bought at the beginning of the customer journey, that's a, that's a leadership commitment, right? Institutional capacity, critical. It's, it's kind of like the old saying, uh, an ounce of prevention is going to beat a pound of cure every time. And if companies are constantly doing scenario planning, well, what happens if what happens if, if this customer has this problem? What happens if, if this server goes down? What happens? You constantly have to, I think, prepare. And that's the ounce of prevention. If you're not doing that due diligence, that's how you can let your customer mm -hmm. down. It's not, you don't, you don't want to let them down, but because you missed something, because you didn't, you didn't have the discipline that you brought up earlier, Steve, that's how we can let our customers down. That's why we have to absolutely be resolute and vigilant and make sure that we're constantly disciplined, doing the job, chopping wood, carrying water, making sure that we are thinking about scenarios so that we can continue to provide value to our customer, not only today, but also what they need, uh, what they, what they need next. So yeah, you it's see commitment. trust. Yeah, that's yeah, do trust. You see trust as a kind of a gut instinct, or is it really measurable? And like you pointed out, scenario based, you can actually plan for it. But you know, before we had this level of sophistication, is it something you just felt, or you just know you earned it? And how do you know? Sometimes. Hmm. So I know I in our business, that, it's yeah. critical because if somebody doesn't trust our ability to deliver results in a timely way, they're not going to work with us. 100%. I think that professional services organizations, that's really where you have like, you can feel because you're working more on a one on one basis. But if you're in a scaled organization, you know, a scale and most 
now most corporations are, and definitely in the tech sector, we're scaled, right? So you need to figure out how to deliver trust <laughs> over and over. I can't just say, okay, 60% of my customer success reps are really trustworthy and they they have that professional comportment, right? Because I've got new ones mm -hmm. coming in too that they need to learn and they need to. So I think that it is critical to understand how to get an A. This is appropriate, you know, this is appropriate account management. This is appropriate customer success execution. Uh, and, and this is not, you don't have to get an A, but you might have trouble working here if you're not looking to get an A. But I think it's critical from a leadership position also to be very, very clear on expectations and behaviors, right? And so first behaviors are you got to understand your customer jobs to be done. You got to understand your technology and how it impacts your customer's success. After that, then you have to start to really do the hard work, make sure all of your customers are on a customer success cycle. That means meeting their not only desired outcomes, but their appropriate desired experience, right? Because that, that's knowing your customer. And look, customers know things go wrong. Things go sideways. They, mm -hmm. they, they expect things to go sideways, but they do expect you to fix it. They expect you to fix it they expect you to fix it professionally. They expect you to regret the mistake. And not thinking about that, thinking about the current market conditions, right? We do work with a lot of growth stage companies, and in this case, digital health. Um, but I mean, what kind of advice would you give a founder or uh, you know, a first-time CEO who's trying to manage growth in a climate where there's increasing pressure from investors? We've we've obviously talked about that in the past too. I mean. It's it's a constant, right? Um, and they're reassessing what do they invest further. So, how what 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 kind of advice or playbook would you give? You know these type of companies, given your experience. Given the economic climate, a company can have a great year and they can knock it out of the park on new logos. I think what I want to see is: Do you have the ability to retain these customers? Do you have processes in place where you can? You can predict, you know, have predictable, replicatable uh, paths for revenue generation. I mean, that is really, I think, critical. I, you, can, you did it. You did it here. You did it for these four quarters. Can you do it for the next four quarters? Can you do it for the next eight, 16? Let, show me how you're going to maintain this growth. How are you going to maintain these customers? Because I think where we get really excited, especially, you know, companies that are in major growth, People ask me, what's the greatest thing about fuel cycle? Growth. What's the most challenging thing about fuel cycle? Growth. Growth. It's hard <laughs> because you want to make money, right? So you want to innovate while, you know, selling your current product and you're trying to innovate new products for your customer, the customers of tomorrow. Um, and and so the money is not in, is not limitless. You have to make choices. There's trade-offs. There's always trade-offs. And I think that some companies, I feel really good about our decisions in terms of our trade-offs because we, we are committed to our customer. It is our number one, it's our number one objective at Fuel Cycle: maintain our customers, retain our customers, provide value. And that's that's critical to our success. And that's why we continue to grow. And that's why we haven't laid off one person since before the pandemic, or I mean, we we haven't laid off one individual. We've grown. Because we're we're, you know, we're kind of like that boring growth of 
keeping our customers really happy and then adding logos and adding, that's how we're growing, right? It's very organic growth. Now, I'm not saying that FuelCycle is gonna be able to continue this growth organically. Uh, I'm sure that at some point we're gonna have to make a decision to, to grow inorganically. But the, the, the critical thing, I think, in terms of a growth company is, you know, as you are learning and as you're going through those phases uh, of, that every company does, I think, you know, you're running at the speed of sound, flying in unsafe spaces. It is really important to solve for the future because, you know, companies are, are they're really gritty. They're bootstrapped. They've got five people to do everything. Those five people are solving problems every day. Those problems recur and recur and recur. And unless somebody steps in and says, this problem has happened too many times for us to ignore it. We need to put a process and a fix in place so that we've got it nailed permanently. And, and I don't think we stop and do that. And those growth companies that are actually, that have processes in place to solve for the future so that they're not on this kind of, you know, ever, ever spinning. Uh, we, we deal with the same problems all the time and we play whack-a-mole and fix it. And then we fix it again. Um, and, and I, I, I think those, you know, that, that's the first thing I'd say is I'd be like, okay, how do you prevent problems from happening again and again? Do you have a process in place to address them, fix them, get a fast learning loop and put a fix in, in place that you can then test? Those companies that can demonstrate to me that they can do that as they grow, that's going to be a company with, you know, some longevity. That company is going to stick around. That company is going to continue to grow. That's great. So um, if you were to start over again, whether it be at a new organization or your career, What's that one piece of advice that you give yourself knowing what you know today? And, and you got to be honest with yourself. I would say, uh, I, so I, early in my career, I just wanted to go fast. I just, I just wanted to go fast. I, I was an individual contributor. I wanted to go fast. I wanted to conquer the world. I wanted to, you know, I, 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 that was very important to me. It was very important to me to get out of college and like get a job right away. It was really important. Uh, I would say that uh, if I could do it again, I would, I would take my time. I'd be more measured. I'd listen and more, and I'd ask for help way more. I ask for help now all the time. I would have done that sooner. If I was, you know, when I was just starting out in my career, I would have been like, I don't know anything, but I'm here to work. And I, and I've got, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a hard worker and I'll dig in and I'll learn. What can you teach me? I think that that's, I, I think that people that are are uh, newer in their career, shall we say, I don't want to use the word younger, but people who have more of their career ahead of them than behind them, um, <laughs> ask for help, ask for feedback. How is the work I'm doing? What do you think about the work I'm doing? What would you, if you were me, what would you focus on? What are the things that you think I should be focusing on to get better and better at what I do? Constantly ask for feedback. Because asking for feedback, I mean, I, I used to be in a scenario where it's like, well, I don't, let me fix this before anybody finds out that I made this mistake. Mm. I'm exactly opposite now. Now, if my teams make a mistake, I'm like, escalate it. A, escalate it so that we don't have a larger issue in the future. B, escalate it so that somebody can mentor you and help you learn. You know, yeah, I make mistakes. If you're not making any mistakes, you are not trying hard enough. That is a fact. Uh, I didn't have, I didn't necessarily have that point of view 20 years ago. I wish I did. It's like when we we're talking about jujitsu earlier, right? It's a process. It's incremental steps. It's refinement. It's learning, right? It's getting coached. 
that's it's kind of a life cycle, right? And you just got to be willing to stay the course. Yeah. And even the incremental steps are really small sometimes, but it's well worth it in the end, right, Steve? Oh, 100%. It's just, uh, such a humbling experience. Just coming in with the mindset that you know nothing and just absorbing everything um, makes all the difference. And, and being okay with taking, you know, taking three steps forward and maybe one or two back. You got to remember that you got, you got one step, you got one step of progress. I think that's important because I think we, we often have some times that we perceive as kind of, you know, we're moving backward or we're not moving forward fast enough, but maybe we need to, maybe we need to slow down to speed up. I think that sometimes it's important to, you know, Think about things, things that's something that concerns me very much about business today. It moves so fast. I worry, like, are we stopping and thinking and thinking what's the best, what's the best way to do this? It's the scenario planning that I was talking about. And, and we, and it's really hard to make time for that, but that's that iterative process that you, that you were talking about, Mike, that kind of like mm -hmm. things that take time, you have to continue the discipline day in, day out, keep trying, you'll make a mistake, you'll come backward. That's really critical. And I, 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 you know, I, I hope that we maintain that spirit of learning. It's very important to me. We have AI now, and it's like, I, I'm very committed to learning, uh, and I hope that our organizations continue to learn every day in an effort to get better and better at what we do every day. And I think that wraps up our podcast for today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, game, set, match. <laughs>